Well, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse when you're a preacher and you can stand up and say, I'm largely going to say the same as what was said last week. That's not because Matt jumped the gun on me when he preached the end of James 3 last week, but because James 4, we've been preaching through this whole book of James over the last several weeks, James 4 is really an outworking of everything that we read at the end of James 3 last week. It's a kind of worked example, shows you what it looks like in practice. Uh, James ended chapter 3, if you look back, by telling us to seek the wisdom that comes from heaven. Now, Matt pointed out last week as well, the Bible's idea of a wise person isn't Gandalf the Grey, someone with uh, a long grey beard who knows lots of stuff. The Bible's idea of a wise person is someone who is a peacemaker, someone who can live well, live in harmony with all the people around them. Uh, James, he was speaking kind of as if he was the writer of the Old Testament book of Proverbs, which is a book all about wisdom. And he finishes chapter 3, if you look at the last verse, with a little proverb of his own. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And because James knows Proverbs, he knows that there is a beginning to the wisdom that comes from heaven. There's something, if you don't have it, it means that you're not going to have wisdom. Without this, it's impossible to receive and live out the wisdom that comes from heaven. And I'm going to see if you know the answer. What is the beginning of wisdom? Oh, come on. What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the writer of Proverbs tells us. Not meaning being afraid of God, but rightly understanding who he is and responding to it. Like how you might say you have a fear of the sea. I doubt you go around terrified of the sea constantly, but if you're stood in front of it and its size and its magnitude, you have a right fear of the sea. Same thing with the fear of the Lord. And that is what James 4, I think, adds to James 3, the fear of the Lord. James is going to give us a good look at the nature and the character of God. And that is what gives us the reason to live out the wisdom that comes from heaven. James 4 gives us reasons to be peaceful, to be those peacemakers who sow for a harvest of righteousness. Now, James is, is a challenging book. And that's meant that you know, some people in the church have really struggled with it over the church's history because it's so practical. It can sound sometimes a bit more like bad news about all the things you have to do rather than good news about God forgiving your sin. And Matt said last week, James is a bit like being in the ring with Anthony Joshua. And to be honest, chapter four is where he really starts to land the body blows on us. So it can sound just like bad news about stuff we have to do. Martin Luther, who was the great uh, reformer in the 1500s who reclaimed the fact that God's forgiveness is at the center of the Bible, he didn't like the book of James. Uh, He said James's letter is really a letter of straw, as as if it's worthless, compared to the other letters, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. He said it's a good book elsewhere, has some good advice in it, but he didn't think it had much of the gospel, of the good news about God's forgiveness in it. And it can be easy, as James starts to lay into the things that we get wrong, to think like that. Do we agree with Martin Luther when we read James? Well, I hope we're going to see, you don't get to say this in the pulpit very often, that Martin Luther was wrong. There is a lot of challenge, there's a lot of condemnation in the book of James for our sin, but he doesn't give us those commands without giving us what we need 
to follow those commands, which is a knowledge of who God is, which is only revealed to us because of the gospel. So we're going to see there's much of the gospel in this passage, as challenging as it is, because there is much of God in this passage. So we're going to think about our reasons to be peaceful shortly, but first, James gives us the reasons that often in the church we find ourselves divided. We're going to look at verses 1 to 3, our reasons for being divided. Now James is clearly writing to churches who are divided. What causes fights and quarrels among you? That word for fights elsewhere in the New Testament is the word for war. Why are you at war with one another, he asks. Now, any good history student will know there are two kinds of wars. I'm married to a history teacher, so I have to be a good history student. There are two kinds of war. A hot war and a cold war. James is going to challenge us whether we're engaged in either kind, a hot war or a cold war. And let's not make any mistake. Our question for ourselves as we come to James chapter 4 isn't are we divided, it's how are we divided. Remember, this is a letter James has written to lots of churches in different places. He assumes there are quarrels and divisions in all of them. So let's think about those two kinds of war. A hot war. A hot war is where the conflict is obvious, is where it's all kicking off. There might be some of us here who've read immediately about fights and quarrels among us and immediately thought of some problems in our own personal relationships. Christians, we're not beyond in the church falling out with one another. Might be someone else within the congregation, might be members of your family, your parents at the minute, might be your own spouse at the minute, might be with other Christians who you know from outside of, of Chesington, who you are in fights and quarrels with. It might address some of our church relationships. It can be very easy in church to come to warring and quarreling and grumbling over how we do things, whether it's things you think the church can do better or how someone else in the ministry you serve in does things, or what happens at the front and who's up here. Um, Or maybe there are people in church you just find annoying. You can't can't bear the sight of them. The sound of their voice, the sight of their face just annoys you. Naming no names. Um, We might not even enter into conflict with them directly, but we might blow off steam about them or joke about them to someone else or have a little comment about them over WhatsApp to someone else. We can be easily led into these hot wars where there are these obvious spats of conflict and disagreements and criticism, even if it's behind closed doors and never to their face. Now, you might not have a hot war raging in your life at the minute. I don't think we have any hot wars, to be honest, particularly raging in uh, CEC at the minute. But we can often find ourselves in cold wars, ones where our, our divisions don't stem from being hostile or being annoyed, but just being indifferent or being negligent. It's easy in our church, I think, to recognize a lot of people or to know people in passing, but to make our excuses for not getting to know each other. I include myself in that. Whether it's people new to us, new to the church, or people that we've been in the church with for years grown up in the church with, but to be honest, never really spoken to. Oh, so-and-so, yeah, never really spoken to them, always struck me as a bit, oh, them, yeah, I think they're new, I think they're friends with the such-and-suches, I've not really spoken to them. 
what's the deal with so-and-so? Oh, I'm not sure. I think he's... We can easily think that we've got the run of someone who we don't know very well and make our very good reasons for not wanting to get to know them any further. And it's, it's hard. We're in a relatively big church. We're in a suburban environment where a lot of us uh, go to work, get home late, have, feel like we have little time to do that. But we make our excuses for doing that. And we often think, well, they've probably got the friends and the family that they need anyway. Why would they really need me? But the end result of avoiding people that you don't know that well looks the same as the end result of if you've actively fallen out with someone. You don't want to meet their eye. You don't want to say hi as you queue to collect your kids from the kids' work. You don't want to mix with their group at YPF. You don't want them to sit next to you in a prayer meeting. That is death, isn't it? That person you're trying to avoid comes and sits next to you and tries to start a chat at 7.45 on a Tuesday when you've had a very long day and want to pray and leave. Looks the same as if you've fallen out with them because you hope they don't come and sit with you. Hold war, cot war, they... Hold war? Cold war, hot war. There we go. James says the reason for the conflict is the same. Look at uh, the end of verse 1. Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? We might think that means the desires, the battle within each of us individually, but more likely means our various desires in the church conflicting with one another. So my desire conflicts with your desire, fights and quarrels result. James goes on, verse 2, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. So we've had James sound like Solomon in Proverbs. Now he sounds like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. He said our conflicts, they amount to killing each other. Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount to feel anger in your heart towards your brother is the same as murdering them. When people frustrate our desires, we wish them dead. Now that might manifest in a blazing row with your parents or really critical rant or snide comments about someone from church. Or it might manifest just in our desire to remain as we are and avoid getting involved with people. But a quiet nod and a smile used to avoid getting into a conversation with someone can be just as self-indulgent as letting rip at someone or having a rant about them. It's your desire pushing that person out of the way, wishing them dead. Again, either way, James says then our conflicts lead to prayerlessness. See, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Now, we, we might want things to change in church. We might want those relationships to heal if we are at odds with someone. But rather than pray for it, what we tend to do is say, well, it's, it's up to them. Up to them to make things right. It's up to other people to come see me and say hi to me. Rather than pray for those things to change, we stick the blame on other people and the divisions become their fault. James carries on, though, with something even more uh, surprising, quite shocking. He says, when you ask, when you do get around to praying, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And this verse is really interesting. He doesn't rebuke his readers, doesn't tell them off for praying for the wrong things. He tells them off for praying with the wrong motives because they want to use the things that they get from praying on their own pleasures, on their own desires. 
So the very things that divide the church, our desires that are at war, are things that James says we can indulge even when we pray. And that should be a stark warning to a church that has a a three-word mission strategy, the first word of which is pray. That even when we pray, we could be indulging desires that cause divisions. We've just set out a new church vision for the next five years. I don't think it's a coincidence that as we've done that, we've hit a section of James and our section of John in the morning that are all about love and unity within the church. Are our prayers as we think ahead for where we want the the church to go in the next several years going to be motivated by God's glory or our own pleasures? It's entirely possible for us to pray for a new church plant, nursing the hope that the people we dislike will leave and go to the church plant, or that it will be a success so that you can leave and leave all of the things behind in this church that you dislike. Or it's possible to pray for the church to grow and reach new people and to see more people here on a Sunday morning with no intention of welcoming them yourself or or myself doing that. Our church strategy is pray, go, invite. And if we want to get past the first bit, we've got to hear James's warning here and ensure that when we are praying, our motives aren't muddied by our own divisions and desires. Now, there are some of the body blows, okay? These are some heavy charges for James to lay uh, at our door as a church, especially when we might often think, and in many ways are, a very united community. So what does James say that is going to motivate and enable us to change and not just weigh us down with all of these condemnations about how divided we are? Well, this is where we get to start to prove Martin Luther wrong. There's much of the gospel that James is going to tell us to help us to change, to motivate us to change. What is it that's going to do it? It is the nature and character of God. So our reasons to be peaceful, James starts to give us now, our first reason to be peaceful is that God is jealous. Look at verses 4 and 5. Matt said last week, James, even though he's being very convicting, he regularly calls his readers brothers. He's like a big brother with his arm around us, even as he gives us some hard things to follow. He drops that in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. Literally, the word is adulteresses. Uh, It's a feminine form of the word. It's the image of an unfaithful wife. So James, he sounded like Solomon in Proverbs. He sounded like Jesus in Matthew. Now he sounds like one of the Old Testament prophets. All through the Old Testament, Israel, God's people, was said to be God's bride, but often they were an unfaithful bride who would go off and worship the gods of other nations. James sees the same kind of unfaithfulness in a divided church. So he carries on, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Friendship with the world, we often might apply that to kind of materialism. So-and-so's been led astray by friendship with the world, Uh, money, sex, power, whatever it might be, true, but friendship with the world here is our divisions in church. Having that in the church is just as worldly as wandering off outside the church to pursue other things. And God can't stand it. If we're the bride, he's the husband, and he's a jealous husband. Look at verse 5. Or do you think Scripture says, without reason, 
that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us. So God lives in the church, lives in each of us as Christians by his Holy Spirit. And so he longs for us to reflect his holiness and not to be divided, but to be united. Holiness and unity and oneness are always very, very closely linked in the Bible. The great prayer, the thing that every Israelite in the Old Testament would pray every day is the prayer from Deuteronomy 6.4. You might have heard it called the Shema. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the prayer that Jews would pray every day and still pray every day. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And God is one, which means first there's only one of him. No other gods but one. But it also means that God is one. He is unified. There's no conflict or division within him. Like if you made a decision in a group and you said, we are one on this matter. God is one. Christians over the centuries have said, God has no parts. That sound confusing. What does that mean? It means you can't divide God down into any smaller bit that might end up competing with another bit of him. Okay, so God doesn't just have love, does he? God is love. He doesn't just have power, he is power. And so his, his power and his love, they're never in conflict with one another. Because he doesn't have any parts. We, individually, as a, as a group, have lots of parts. So one day, my, my power might be having a better day than my love, and I might decide to be a bit harsh. One day, my love might have a better day than my power, and I decide to be a bit soft. Or my idea of power might conflict with your idea of love, and we conflict with one another. Not so in God, because he is one. No division in him. God is one, but we're often divided. All of our different parts warring against each other. But that's why he jealously longs for the spirit that he's put in us. He is one, and so he yearns for us to be one. Doesn't this link up with what we've been uh, hearing in John in the morning? We're going to hear it more in the next few weeks. He longs for us to be one like he is one. And that might sound like more bad news. Doesn't that just highlight how divided we are when we think about how one God is? But no, because his spirit is already in us and he's jealous for it. That doesn't mean he wants it back. It means he wants it to be at work in us. It means he's invested in making us one, even if we insist on continuing to be divided. Isn't it good news to be told that God longs for you and that he's jealous for you and he hasn't left you to continue being divided, to continue um, being hostile, to continue being indifferent. I am all of those things every day, every Sunday. And yet God longs jealously because of the spirit he's put in me that I would be one with those around me. Chesington Evangelical Church is jealously longed for. And that is gospel. That is a reason for us to be peaceful because God longs for us to be one like he is one. Perhaps we haven't cared about our unity like we should have done. But our Lord God, who is one, he has, does care about our unity. And he doesn't want to leave us to our divisions, but he longs for us to be one. 
So God is jealous, one reason to be peaceful. Two, God is generous. Verses 6 to 10, let's look at those. Because God is jealous for us, he is going to be generous toward us. There are a few things that are harder to overcome than deep, long-standing divisions. If you've fallen out with someone a long time ago and you've never patched it up, or if you've gone a bit off with someone and never addressed it, or if there's someone you've known for years and never quite said hello to and it's a bit too awkward now, it's hard to climb down in our divisions, especially when we think we're in the right. Though often, the longer it goes, the more we realize that James is probably right, and it wasn't a matter of right or wrong, it was just a matter of our desire conflicting with somebody else's. We must admit that to ourselves, that often we're not as in the right as we think we are, we're just indulging our desire, and then we must admit that to God. And that is hard, it takes humility and submission. But James tells us that when we do, there will always be grace. Look at verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. This is all God giving his grace. It's promise. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Even if we know we failed, God will give us grace that will overcome our pride and our divisions. And this isn't a painless, instant process. Verses 8 to 9, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. We've got to let our divisions, whether they're from hostility or annoyance or indifference, we have to let them grieve us. We can't shrug and laugh them off. See again that word double-minded keeps coming up throughout the book of James. Double-mindedness is James' way of saying we're often kidding ourselves. Kidding ourselves we can live God's way and the world's way. That we can be divided and yet still claim to believe in a God who is one. We've got to be honest about our double-mindedness and grieved by it. But even this command to grieve and mourn and wail is good news. Because again, God does not leave us to our divisions. He invites us to repent, to come near, so that he can come near to us and heal us. He doesn't just tell us we're dirty. He invites us to wash our hands. He doesn't merely tell us that we're broken, but he invites us to purify our hearts. That's why James bookends this little section with uh, another promise. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. God will not turn us away if we come to him and confess the role that we've played in dividing the church, whether in a hot war or a cold war. God will not turn us away, but will give us more grace. Might be an obvious sin of conflict, might be a secret sin of quiet little digs about people, might be an indifference and a laziness that's meant you failed to pursue someone who you think might be in need. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. So God's jealous. He's holy and one. He longs for us to be holy and one. He is generous. He'll always give us grace to help us be one. And the third reason to be peaceful, our last couple of verses, is that God is 
judge. So look at verses 11 and 12. James gives us a final reason. Another one rooted in God's character. God is judge. And he returns, he stops landing the body blows, I think, in verse 11, to brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. And we could have worked that much out this far. Don't slander one another. Why should we not slander one another? He carries on. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. What does he mean by saying that we speak against the law when we speak against a brother and sister? Well, the law means all of God's commands in the Old Testament, but you can sum up that law, we're often told, in two laws. Love God and love your neighbor. James quoted uh, the law to love your neighbor back in chapter 2. He uses the word neighbor, doesn't he, at the end of verse 12. Who are you to judge your neighbor? So that's what he has in mind, the law to love your neighbor. So if we slander one another, we slander the law to love your neighbor. Why? Because we think we don't need to live by it. When we voice the grudge, when we crack the joke, when we justify not following up with someone who we might think is struggling, we slander them, we judge them, we fail to love them as our neighbor. We don't kneel before that law and say, yes, Lord, I will obey your law to love my neighbor, but we sit on it and think ourselves above it. Why is that an unthinkable thing for James? Look at verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And when we judge others, we forget that we're mere creatures. Our knowledge of any situation of what someone might be dealing with as they get on, our, get on the wrong side of us. Our knowledge about them is partial. We don't know what they're dealing with, often. Our motives are mixed, as we've seen. We're full of competing and warring parts. How could we ever properly judge someone? But God, the only lawgiver and judge, he's not a mere creature. He's pure and holy. He's one. There's no conflict in him, nothing questionable, doesn't have a bad day. He is so unlike us, and so only he can really judge people. He's the one who makes the final decision on someone. He's the one who's able to save and destroy, James says. We can write off those we're in conflict with as a hopeless case, or as a relationship as being irreconcilable, or someone is just stuck in their ways. But God's the one who's going to decide if that person is saved or destroyed, not us. Now, this is a challenge, but again, it's good news to be reminded that God is the judge and you're not, because it's exhausting to try and be the judge. If it is purely for God to be the judge, it will break you. It will exhaust you trying to be the judge all the time. Imagine trying to be be omnipotent, to be all-powerful like God is. Be shattered, because you're not designed to do it. You're also not designed to be the judge of all the people you're in conflict with. A life of slander, of judgment, a life of avoiding people and trying to um, not get into conversations with them that might get too deep, it's exhausting. We can be free of that exhaustion if we will let God be the judge. Let him be the one who will make the final decision on the people in our lives. It's good news to be reminded that you're not God. Maybe there's a division or a grievance, a grudge, someone you've been avoiding that you can let down, lay it down, forget about it this evening, because God is the judge. So to wrap up, we are divided. 
because of the desires at war within us. But we've got reasons to be peaceful. God is jealous. He longs for our oneness. He's generous. He'll give us the grace to repent of our divisions and to be one again. And God is judge. We'll exhaust ourselves trying to maintain those divisions. We should leave the judgment to him. And there's nowhere that we should remember those things more than as we come to the Lord's table this evening. Because this is where we share one loaf, one cup together as a sign that we are one body with one head, Jesus Christ. Look around as you eat and drink. The Lord's table is the visual bit of our service. Usually we're just listening or talking. This is where you get to look. Look at that bread that comes around that's been mangled by all these other hands. Hands, you, you have no choice in deciding whether you're going to be in church with them because you're one with them, whether you like it or not. Look at that cup that you're going to share with them. You're one with these people, divided as you might seem at the minute. And we also repent at this table. We come, remember our sins and confess them, but we will find that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will lift us up. We're going to sing shortly. I'll invite the musicians up. Um, I'll pray briefly. We're going to sing a great prayer of unity. Gracious Father, Son and Spirit, ever joined in bonds of love, may your church share in the union of our God, the three in one. Let me pray briefly and then we'll stand and we'll sing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Gracious Father, Son and Spirit, we acknowledge that you are perfect unity and perfect love. There are no parts within you to conflict with one another. Yet we are divided. We are full of shifting shadows and change, but you, the Father of heavenly lights, have no such thing. Would you cause us to repent, to grieve and mourn and wail, but to find grace in our time of need, to repair us, make us one. In your son's name we pray. Amen.